The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson and on the podcast this week, Sam Leith explains how he's been keeping up friendships through online Scrabble. Lionel Shriver reads her column on how to offend your customers. And Angus Colwell reads his arts lead on the V&A Dundee's Tartan exhibition. Up first, Sam Leith. The internet, as we all know, is a place for rage and hate. It's a free fire zone in which something even as apparently innocuous as Facebook, original use case of posting family snaps for your gran, ends up incubating armed insurrection and spreading 5G conspiracy theories. But what if there was some corner of it untouched by death threats, disinformation and the baleful influence of Vladimir Putin's troll farms? What if there was still some corner of the World Wide Web which lived up to its original promise of connecting people who would not otherwise be connected? And what if, once connected, they were nothing but agreeable to each other? Be of good cheer. That corner exists. Not everyone is arguing with Owen Jones and India Willoughby. Not everyone is flaming Lee Anderson and Suella Bravman, fighting glowy-eyed Bitcoin cultists or railing against Elon Musk. Some of us are playing Scrabble. Playing Scrabble on a smartphone app may not change the world, not in a visible, glorious, concrete way. It may not alter the balance of power in Congress or on the battlefield in Ukraine, but just from time to time, il faut cultiver notre jardin. And contra those who believe that screens are isolating us from one another and fraying the social fabric, here's a way in which they are not. Little, silly games played online are considerably underappreciated contributors to the web of human interconnection and the sum of human happiness. I have a couple of old friends whom I don't see from one year to the next. People who live in Cornwall or in New York or even in the remote and inaccessible wilds of South London, but whom I keep up with simply through Scrabble. Friendship, it seems to me, isn't always about exchanging deep and meaningful confidences. If it were, there are a whole lot of lifelong old-school male relationships that would not even earn the name of friendship. I think of my late uncle's Wednesday chess game, of interactions that consist only of football banter, or the silent togetherness on a riverbank of anglers. Friendship doesn't even rely on intimacy, necessarily. It can be just about checking in. A few seconds of companionable engagement every day or two. And that's what Scrabble, or chess, my brother-in-law thrashes at me at that, offers most satisfactorily. You will have lifelong friends with whom you have shared the deepest of emotional turmoils and whom you see in the flesh not more than once a year or so. Knowing that they are there will matter to you very much, but they're not features of your day-to-day life. But you will also have friends with whom you have a series of games of Scrabble or online chess that will run over months, years or even decades, and their existence touches your life, just glancingly, nearly every day. The ebb and flow of the relationship is marked by sunglasses emojis when you get a high-scoring bingo, exploding head emojis when your opponent does, by GG and guts 
Perhaps you'll wish one another happy birthday or commiserate when a job interview goes badly, but that will be about it. These two categories of friends can overlap. A game of Scrabble is more fun and less cursory, more personal and less guilt-shrouded than a Christmas card list, which you could see as the analogue method of keeping in touch with friends with whom you've lost touch. But they can also be quite separate. Most Scrabblers or chess players, or I guess devotees of play money poker, Yahtzee or what have you, will have acquired friends whom they never meet in the form of regular opponents. I still have a couple of pals over the year who I only knew through online Scrabble. I still smart sometimes at the thought of quite how comprehensively and how often Mark G used to beat me. A colleague of mine reports that his mother not long ago attended the funeral of one of her Scrabble friends, never having met him in real life. Turns out he was quite the fantasist, but I suppose that didn't much matter, given that the online version of him was the only version she ever knew or needed to know. The ad hoc online relationships which form around games are not quite a whole new thing in the world. If you're a passionate stamp collector or bridge player or Doctor Who fan, you would perhaps bump into the same people at conventions or clubs or the like. But these hobby communities have become much easier to form and much more common in the age of the internet, and they reach deeper into the lives of their participants while remaining all but invisible to the outside world. It seems to me that this is a wholly good thing, and that its effect on the mental health and general happiness of those who belong to such communities is not to be underestimated. If you live somewhere remote, or you're lonely, or you do shift work at antisocial hours, or if, like me, you work at home and seldom leave the house, these communities add up to an enriching but low-pressure form of human contact. I play a very silly old-school multiplayer game called World of Warcraft, for instance, and so I'm part of an in-game guild who team up to kill monsters once or twice a week, whose members I interact with much more often than my real-life friends. They're scattered all over the world. I've become very familiar with South Africa's load-shedding issues, and include people of all ages and from many walks of life. Grandmother, schoolboy, long-distance lorry driver, care home worker, caterer, paediatric nurse, accountant, and a couple who run a rifle range. I know them only by their in-game names or Discord tags. I can walk past any of them in the street without recognising them. Yet I'm never not pleased to see them in-game. We share virtual experiences, teasing and in-jokes. They're friends. You don't have to be launching a 25-man raid on Ulduar to enjoy that sort of companionship, though. All you need to be able to do is to take a minute or two out of your day to figure out how best to use that triple-letter square your opponent has left free. That was Sam Leith. Next, Lionel Shriver. In some quarters, American enterprise is alive and well. Established in 1929 to promote consumer protection, the conservative nonprofit Consumers Research is launching the free service Woke Alerts, which texts subscribers news of companies, quote, putting progressive activists and their dangerous agendas ahead of customers. Using iconography reminiscent of adverts for those high-frequency plugins that ward off mice, the parent website urges shoppers tired of corporations latching onto fashionable left-wing causes to dramatize their displeasure through product boycotts. The idea is a bit goofy. Yet the app could appeal to a far more than niche market. Only 8% of the U.S. public self-identifies as far left. That leaves a fair whack of folks prospectively unenthralled by progressive corporate posturing. This month, the Brewers Anheuser-Busch 
sent the prancing trans influencer Dylan Mulvaney a customized case of Bud Light, each tin printed with the image of this would-be female exhibitionist. Thanks to Mulvaney's subsequent TikTok video, in which the parodically feminine convert to my sex preens in a bubble bath slurping from Budweiser's freebies, Bud Light sales have plummeted. Collective public disgust hived 4.8 billion pounds from Anheuser-Busch's market value in just a few days. Nike is next. The sportswear company has also partnered with Mulvaney, who's been leaping about on camera doing awkward, sissified calisthenics while wearing a Nike running bra. But the purpose of a running bra is to firmly support breasts, and Dylan Mulvaney doesn't have any breasts. In kind, a recent Honey Burdette lingerie advert features a man wearing a lacy red push-up bra and suspender belt, his tights failing to suppress what Mulvaney dubs the bulge. My crotch doesn't look like other women's crotches sometimes because mine doesn't look like a little Barbie pocket, the influencer has observed, as if the part of a woman from which children emerge is a cheap bit of plastic. Mulvaney's urging on TikTok has even offended the trans icon, Caitlyn Jenner. While the rumor on Twitter that Tampax has also engaged Mulvaney as a sponsor is erroneous, the company did send the male anatomy show-off multiple free boxes of tampons. As I recall, during my reproductive years, Tampax never posted me any free tampons. At least such a welcome giveaway, they're expensive, would have made biological sense. What are marketing people thinking? On the off chance you've never seen the Chancellor's videos, Mulvaney has made a public spectacle of his year-long transition to becoming not really a girl. The 26-year-old's version of being female is so exaggerated, writing large the most pathetic aspects of stereotypical femininity, that for anyone with genuine XX chromosomes, the play acting is grievously insulting. Makeup caked, pinkies raised daintily upward, heels lifted high and out to the side, he flits prissily on a 20-foot run. This is the sort of girl who throws underhand and five feet too wide, who's afraid of worms, who hates getting dirty, who cries all the time, who squeals at minor celebrities, who can't pound a nail or open jam jars, and who jabbers incessantly about frocks, skincare products, and periods. Had I watched one of these performances in a state of innocence, I'd have mistaken the video for an anti-trans piss-take. This once little-known actor may well be a calculating opportunist, cashing in, accumulating more than a million pounds so far on a warped trend. Racking up nearly 13 million followers, the fellow, yes, his, he, fellow, go ahead, met, arrest me, is doing terribly well from pageantry watched nearly a billion times online. Many can't look away views, as in my case, drawn for being so horrific. In a way, then, you can't blame the guy. 
you can blame companies perversely attaching themselves to an influencer who offends a large proportion of their customers. Budweiser has traditionally targeted men, and whatever pronoun we use to cite the character, Mulvaney makes a poor excuse for a fishing, shooting, pub-crawling bloke. The brand's image is no-nonsense, down-home, and working class. Why alienate your commercial base merely to appeal to a narrow Gen X demographic, most of whom can't yet legally drink? Anecdotally, a Missouri bar manager reports that sales of Bud Light in his venue halved in a week. A sports bar owner in Massachusetts claims his Bud Light sales are down by 80%. I've observed this pattern before regarding publishing houses more obsessed with diversity than with producing books people want to buy. Intoxicated by hip left-wing causes, corporations lose sight of their primary purpose, profit. Granted, boardroom ideology is doubtless skin deep. These affected displays of what currently passes for virtue must be motivated by the same cynical opportunism that drives Mulvaney. But since when do we need to remind companies to make money? Their social engineering strategy is backfiring spectacularly. So maybe these marketers aren't cynical enough. Which brings us back to woke alerts. Conventionally, it's the left that deploys product boycotts, think Israel. And it's the left that has contrived online rating systems to suppress right-of-center opinions. The Corporate Equality Index rates companies on their alphabet people policies. The Global Disinformation Index punishes websites for not towing the progressive line. Consumers' research is using the same tactics to fight back. Personally, I would see it vastly expand its new service. Know those advisories at the beginning of Netflix films include sexually graphic scenes and drug-taking, etc.? Before Channel 4's Naked Education, which in the interest of body-positive acceptance all but urges young women to chop their breasts off, let's see Woke Alert pop up on screen. Before the BBC News, Woke Alert at the entrance to National Trust Properties, shameful cesspits of colonialism and links to slavery. Woke Alert! Outside the Welcome Trusts exhibit, claiming milk is racist. Woke alert! Look, I know we're all sick to the back teeth of the word woke. But at least it's unisyllabic and punchy, and most of us know what it means. Besides, we wouldn't have to use the tiresome shorthand nearly as often if there weren't so bloody much of it about. That was Lionel Shriver. And finally, Angus Colwell. Crisscrosses everywhere. 300 objects covered in them. The exhausting range and depth of the world's most famous pattern is on full display at the V&A Dundee's vast new exhibition. Tartan is a more genuine emblem of Scottish nationhood than the famous deep-fried Mars bar, which no one really eats. But it's not uniquely Scottish. Plaid has been worn across Western Europe for hundreds of years, then was claimed by Scotland as the symbol of the nation now recognised the world over. It's also a political weapon. In the recent SNP leadership election, 
the outsider Ash Regan wore practically nothing but the fabric. And Ian Blackford has in the past unnerved many a viewer when he bent down in his kilt to lay a wreath at the cenotaph. And Nicola Sturgeon even wore a tartan face mask during the pandemic. At the V&A, I saw a tartan teapot, a tartan guitar, a stuffed tartan crocodile, a tartan Xbox controller. One of the best items is Scotland's oldest tartan, the Glen Affric, found in a peat bog in the Highlands four decades ago. Radiocarbon testing has dated it between 1500 and 1655. The wetlands have preserved it remarkably well. Tartan is highly regulated. There exists the Scottish Register of Tartans, a government-sponsored department launched in 2009. In the exhibition's first room, we are immediately told the rules of the grid. Tartan has to be a minimum of two colours, producing a third where they meet. The pattern formed by the warp and weft is called a set. Everything has to be in perfect balance. It's slightly officious and intimidating. I'd always believed that identifying a tartan pattern was like Kenneth Clark in Civilization. I know it when I see it. The most revealing item in the show is the Vestiarum Scotium from 1842. For a few years, this was thought to be the Tartan Bible, showing which Highland clan wore which pattern. But it's now thought to be a forgery. John and Charles Allen, otherwise known as the Sobieski Stuarts, due to their supposed relation to the Jacobite monarchs, claimed that they had discovered medieval manuscripts showing that Tartan was worn by both Highlanders and Lowlanders. Contemporaries smelled a rat, including Sir Walter Scott, and after a little digging, they proved that the vestiarium was a tartan weaver's ruse. As Hugh Trevor Roper wrote in The Invention of Scotland, the Sobieski Stuarts were classic up from Englanders, granting Scottish history an order that it lacked. There was a decent case to be made that Highland life really was just barbarous, argued Trevor Roper, and it was only after roads and a legal system came that soft-headed modern writers could invest that barbarism with retrospective romance. Tartan is, whether out loud or not, about Scotland claiming ownership of the fabric. But the exhibition should admit that the oldest known tartan cloth is actually about 2,500 years old, and was found not in Scotland, but in northwest China. And that Boudicca dressed in a tunic of many colours, according to Dio Cassius, that most people have interpreted to be a tartan check. Why hasn't the pattern become a political weapon in Beijing or Westminster? How did tartan acquire its status in Scotland, and why did it happen only recently? Even Scottish football fans didn't start getting tartaned up until the 1970s. But instead of taking a genuine look at the emergence and invention of this artistic tradition, the exhibition has a section on tartan and sexuality, focusing on the historic fascination with what lies under the kill. I think we can guess. The show is keen to promote the idea that tartan is rebellion and asserts that tartan can inspire new understandings of masculinities, promote awareness of sexual discrimination and question fixed sexual identities. Is that not true of all clothes? Overlooked by the curators is what a conservative object tartan is, a fixed motif connecting the living and the dead, a design that valorises blood and family. The show wants to emphasise how the pattern can liberate the individual, but fundamentally, tartan represents the complete opposite. It's about subsuming personhood within a group. Tartan's modern revival owes much to the romantic revisionism of the Jacobite rebellion by George IV whose visit to Scotland in 1822, the first by a reigning monarch in nearly two centuries, was carefully choreographed by Walter Scott. It's been deftly and very successfully marketed ever since by Scotland's most famous sons and daughters. The Tam O'Shanter, written about by Robert Burns, is here. Alan Cumming is shown wearing a kilt during the Yes campaign for independence in 2014. Jackie Stewart's tartan racing helmet is the last exhibit, which 
is a relief because a mannequin wearing a tartan face mask threatened to be the cringeworthy finale. Is Scotland the best place for a tartan show? Would Paris be the best place for a dive into berets? Would a vodka exhibition do well in Moscow? The Guinness factory in Dublin is considered a tourist trap. It's a surprise that Tartan, the V&A Dundee's first in-house curated exhibition, hasn't been more mocked. It's not far off choosing haggis, or whiskey, or bagpipes. The show reflects a wider desire across all the arts for us to look inward, for self-examination, to shirk the unfamiliar and foreign. Art today must be relatable. Like so many museums, the V&A Dundee is asking, who are we, instead of, who are they? If this exhibition is an exercise in nation-building, that's fine, but would a truly self-confident culture need to do this? And why Dundee? The V&A opened here in 2018, the centrepiece of a 1.6 billion regeneration. Being the butt of Scottish jokes will make a city want to do that. It's been seen as a place of Hogarthian poverty. The Scottish Advocate General, Lord Coburn, said in 1844 that Dundee was a sink of atrocity which no moral flushing seems capable of cleansing. Ironically, that was during Dundee's finest hour, when it expanded thanks to the jute industry and trade with the empire. Someone points to the planning decisions of the 1960s City Council, who instead of restoring the magnificent old buildings, chose to replace them with concrete slabs. The new waterfront is pleasant enough, but it is the duff architecture of Hotel Ibis, New Labour and pubs. The V&A in London sold itself in the 1980s as an ace cafe with quite a nice museum attached. And the Dundee branches too. It does a great cheese toasty. But it is meant to be more than an art gallery or an ace cafe. There is an expectation that it will spur the city to better things. Achieving that would make it a GCSE geography case study par excellence. Turning cities' fortunes around solely through art has been tried many more times than it's succeeded. Far easier, however, for Scotland's leaders to say that the V&A will make Dundee a nicer place to live than to try to solve its real problems. A city where more people are dying of drugs than anywhere else in Europe. Where people are more likely to be the victim of violent crime than anywhere else in Scotland. Where half of baby boys are expected to die before they reach the age of 73. Where teenage pregnancies are the third highest in the country. Where more women are victims of domestic violence than in any other Scottish city. While I was there, Dundee's ambient darkness was made more eerie by the curated absence of it at the waterfront. The city needs help. Proper help. A tartan plaster won't heal the wound. And that's everything for this week. If you enjoy those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and I hope you join us again next week.